If Joseph is not Jesus' biological father, then how is Jesus in the line of David? Well, this is the way that Matthew explains it in verse 15 and 16 of chapter 1. Uh, Eliud was the father of Eleazar. Eleazar was the father of Mathan. Mathan was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Mary gave birth to Jesus, who is also called the Messiah. Uh, clearly, there's a bit of a change in the pattern. And uh, if you haven't been through a Christmas before, you'll be up for a bit of a surprise. The point is that Jesus was conceived not by a man, but by the Holy Spirit. But this clearly didn't rule out Jesus as being a legitimate descendant of David. Have a look at the very first verse of the whole New Testament. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. So whilst he wasn't the biological son of Jacob, he's legally in the line of David. And that's how God sees it and how he's put it in his word. Question two. Was Herod's temple an extension or a new building? Last week I said that a third temple was built around about 400 years after the second one, which meant it was about 20 BC. And the question says, hang on, was, what happened in 20 BC, a new building or an extension? Well, I probably wasn't as clear as I should have been. Uh, it actually, technically, is still the second temple. But the renovations were so massive that the building essentially replaced the temple that was built by Zerubbabel. Question three. What does it say on the shields, on the arches, on our church ceiling and why? Ooh, everybody's just done this. Have you a look? I don't know if you've ever walked around and seen it, but it goes. This is none other but the house of God. There you go. That's a simple answer, except it does say why. Uh, well, you'd probably have to ask the people who painted it up there, but it's a quote from the Bible from Genesis 28, which Jacob says after he has his dream about the stairway to heaven. He's got his head on the stone and all that kind of stuff. God was present at that site, and that's why Jacob said that this location was the house of God. Uh, there are all sorts of other times in the Bible that the house of God expressions used. For example, in the Old Testament, it's talked about the tabernacle. And so is this church building the house of God? Well, no, not in the same way as Jacob's famous dream and not in the same way as the temple either, because Jesus is now the temple and you are his temple if you are a follower of Jesus. This beautiful, beautiful building, as much as we love it, is a building with an important history and a purpose. But if you really want to say this is but none other but the house of God, we've got to look at Jesus and we've got to look at us, we who are in it. Question four. If God endorses capital punishment, then why was Cain not executed? Well, Cain killed his brother Abel in cold blood and deserved the harshest punishment for it. But God didn't strike him dead. Instead, God had another punishment for him that, that Cain considered too great for me to bear. Now, we don't know why God didn't just kill him, but we do know that God commands capital punishment for murder in the Old Testament. And so we read in Numbers 35, All murderers must be put to death but only if evidence is presented by more than one witness. No one may be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. Also, you must never accept a ransom payment for the life of someone guilt, judged guilty of murder and subject to execution. Murderers must always be put to death. 
In the New Testament, there's not the same command to do this, but it's up to the ruler to decide whether or not to yield the sword in punishment, which is what I quoted from last week at Romans 13. Well, a sort of a continuing question. Did Jesus stop the stoning of the woman in John 8 because he was against capital punishment? Hmm. You know the story? There's a woman who's caught in a sexual sin and they go about to stone the woman and Jesus says, stop. Uh, Why does he say stop? Why does he intervene? Is it because he didn't like capital punishment? I don't think that's the main reason. Uh, It seems more likely that Jesus stopped the stoning of the woman because he wanted to make a point that all people are sinful, except, of course, for Jesus. And I wonder also whether he was intervening because they weren't going about things the way they should have. And so in Deuteronomy 17... Verse 6 and 7, it says, Never put a person to death on the testimony of only one witness. There must always be two or three witnesses. The witnesses must throw the first stones, and then all the people may join in. In this way, you will purge the evil from among you. Uh, What is it that Jesus wrote on the ground? Maybe he wrote down Deuteronomy 17. Who knows? Um, But the point is that I don't think Jesus stopped the stoning due to his stance on capital punishment. I think that's an question in another section. Question six. If we're never going to be perfect, why should we try? Well, that's true. We will never be perfect. But God says we should pursue holiness. Uh, We should live a life that pleases him. You know how it works. It's not so that God will be impressed by how we're living and say, all right, you're a nice guy. I'll now let you into my heaven. doesn't work that way. It's because he's already loved us. He's already forgiven us if we've come to Christ. If you've done business with him and said, I want to follow you, Jesus, then it's only then that we respond by trying to live a life that pleases him, which follows with question seven. Are Christians free to do whatever we like? Well, no, because if we do that, then we show that we are disobedient to God and, in fact, that we are still slaves to sin. Uh, All of the youth are going through Romans at the moment on their Friday night Bible study, and uh, in a few, I don't know, months or years, depending on the speed they're going, they'll get to this bit, which is from Romans chapter 6, verse 15. Well then, since God's grace has set us free from the law, does that mean that we can go on sinning? Here's the question. Of course not. Don't you realise that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, Or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. Thank God. Once you were slaves of sin, but now you wholeheartedly obey this teaching we've given to you. Now you're free from your slavery to sin and you've become slaves to righteous living. I think that answers the question. Question eight. Before Christianity, did everyone go to hell? No. Uh, God saved his people from hell ever since he made humans. Uh, Anyone who is a member of his covenant, his promised people, they were saved by faith in God. But what is interesting, a bit of an interesting turn of events, and that is that these faithful believers who lived before Jesus were actually still saved by Jesus, even though they came much before him in history. But God has been saving people throughout time by faith in him and faith in his promises. Question nine, why do ministers wear funny collars? 
Well, uh, this question is referring to the, uh, the clerical collar. Uh, you, you don't see me wearing it on Saturday nights. I do wear it on Sunday mornings. I'll tell you why in a moment. Um, back before I was born, I'm told, uh, it was expected that Sydney Anglican ministers would wear them every day except for their day off and except on holidays. There you go. I can assure you that's no longer the case. Uh, and I think one of the reasons that uh, the ministers stopped wearing them was that they wanted to help break down the barrier between the official minister and everybody else, which I think is a really good thing. Uh, we want to, everyone to know that if you're a follower of Jesus, then you're in the ministry as much as I am in that sense. Uh, another reason, I think, has been that it's been thought that it's too churchy and there was a push, certainly in the 70s and 80s, uh, to sort of say, let's try and make our church as, as, as non-religious as entirely possible. So let's dress like we're real estate agents and, live, and, in, and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> Now, I, I think that's a good reason as well. Uh, but the thing is that I sat down, uh, about nearly three years ago, I sat down with a bunch of people who came to our morning service. And uh, back then it was only about, oh, about 10 of us, really. And I said, do you reckon that if I was to wear a clerical shirt, that it might help you invite your friends along to church? Do you think it might actually help them feel comfortable and, and feel like there's a less of a barrier between church and, uh, and where they're at? And they said, oh, yes, that'd be really, really good. So there we go. I started doing that three years ago. And uh, the reason I keep doing that until I stop doing it is that I'm trying to help people who may have gone to church when they were much younger to come along and say, this feels like home, although what I'm listening to sounds different, perhaps. And I particularly want that to be the case for people who grew up and may still go to a Roman Catholic church and come in and say, there's stuff that's similar, but what's being said is clearly different. And so that's a missional strategy in that sort of way. Question 10. Was the big cherubim the inspiration for monuments like the big banana? Uh, I, I don't know if we can track a clear connection between the two. Uh, I, I'd like to see a, a theme park that might have big Bible things. I think there might even be one in America somewhere. Uh, but there certainly uh, perhaps is a similar principle that <laughs> drives them all. And more about that in today's sermon. <laughs>